Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome, everyone, to a special interview edition of Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross, and as I always do after majors, I'm bringing Steve Flink on the program, writer for Tennis.com, a tennis hall of famer, author of the book, The Greatest Tennis Matches of All Time. In some ways, this is just a conventional Steve Flink interview going over what we just witnessed over the last two weeks at the Australian Open, but we also get into some other topics a little bit later uh, in the chat uh, I talk about um, an article that he recently wrote where he actually predicted the final Grand Slam count between Federer, Nadal, and, and Djokovic. He predicted what he thinks will be the results of that race when it's all said and done. So we get into that a little bit. Uh, and then uh, I also ask him about bias in the media um, and the surf clock. So lots of interesting stuff on top of the regular uh, Aussie Open chat that uh, we're all used to. I think you'll enjoy it. Here it is. Steve Flink is a writer for Tennis.com, a member of the Tennis Hall of Fame, and the author of the book, The Greatest Tennis Matches of All Time. Unless you're new to the channel, you are very familiar with Mr. Flink, who uh, we like to bring on after every major, uh, and it is always a pleasure. So, uh, Steve, thanks again. Thanks for having me, Gil. Looking forward to it. <laughs> We have another one to look back upon with 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 great memories. Yeah, seriously, uh, these majors they don't tend to disappoint, and uh, this one was no exception. So, what I want to do the game plan here, uh, I want to cover all the bases about what went down at the Aussie Open, particularly the latter stages, and then I want to get to a piece you wrote recently. I don't know if it was published today or yesterday on Tennis.com, but it was assessing the the slam race and uh i want to get to that afterwards sure. and and that'll be uh, really good i think people will uh, enjoy that discussion but first let's start with djokovic picks up his 17th major title his record eighth aussie open title and to me it reminded me of the wimbledon run last year where he he comes into the final he he really didn't bring his best stuff tell me if you agree but it was really the mental toughness and his ability to elevate his game in big moments that brought him across the finish line. Yeah, I largely do agree with that assessment. It was a little, a little strange, though, Gil, because I thought in the first set, he was so good up to 4-1 in the first set. He broke team early. Those first five games, he was just brilliant. He couldn't have played any better. And then he tightened up, and a team got back to 4-all, and I think that made Novak a little uneasy. He saw some apprehension, and he managed to... Uh, uh, managed to get through it. He held one more time and broke a second time to win the set, but it wasn't his confidence 
boosting a set as it might have been. And then, as you, as as we both saw, you know, they 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 exchanged breaks in the second set, and Djokovic was at four all when he got a couple of time violations, and that really upset him, and he really vented at the umpire at the changeover. Meantime, he loses six games in a row. So not only has he dropped the second, but he pretty much conceded the third, and his energy was he had a severe energy depletion and was trying to figure out how to handle it with all the fluids. and uh, But then here's what I would say. So the third set, he lost 6-2, but by the end of the third, I thought he was regaining his equilibrium, got his, some of his strength back. And then I felt in the fourth and fifth he was back in the lockdown mode, that that was the Djokovic that we know, not missing a ball. And he was very calm. He wasn't emoting much, which might have been, Slightly different, but he, he he had his game back, and he had his game face back on, and you could tell that he he felt a lot better than he had in the, especially through the third set. So yeah, but it it took a lot of mental toughness to come out of that dark corner he'd put himself in of going down two sets to one. Yeah, there was certainly adversity, and there's no doubt that. Djokovic was extremely consistent, steady. He was moving well by the time he got his legs back uh, right, throughout right. the match. But yep. he he never found that level. And I agree with you. It it almost looked like it was going to be a replay of the 2019 final in Melbourne in the beginning of the match. And yeah. he just never yeah. found that level again. No, he could he didn't know. But he found a very good, high, reliable level that was actually the right recipe considering the team was now team of course had been through a couple of pretty tough matches particularly the four hour plus match against Nadal it was only four sets but it might as well have been five for the effort that he put in to win three tie breaks in those in those four sets and then another tough four setter of course with Zarev in the semis so he was I think he was he was really feeling it a bit in his legs and Djokovic knew that and so I think the right recipe then was not to have to go for quite as much not to be quite as fancy or spectacular or going for lines as much as he did earlier, but be solid as a rock. And it really worked those last two sets. And of course, played a couple of really brilliant serve and volley points. One when he was early in the fourth, when he could have gone down a break on break point down. And the other one, when he was up a break in the fifth, those were two critical points that he alluded to after the match. So it was an impressive performance. And I, I, I think he, uh, what he's done on that court is just remarkable to win all eight finals he played in Australia. And now he's won, 11 of his last 13 major finals altogether, so he's been on a remarkable run. Those points were massive, those two serving volleys. Let's uh, transition to team here. He's now sure. 0-3 in major finals, but the tasks don't get much tougher than beating Nadal on court Philippe Chatrier and beating Djokovic on Rod Laver Arena. But still, uh, what's missing for team, if anything? No, I don't think much is missing, uh, Gil, to be honest, because... The first time, he just was completely outclassed by Nadal at Roland Garros a, a couple of years ago. Then last year, he took him to four. Played pretty well, and then he got tired. He was worn out from the five-set semi with Djokovic. It was played over two days. And now here he goes up two sets to one and loses a very respectable 6-4 in the fifth. He really hung in the fifth. He could have gone down two breaks when he was serving at 2-4, and he, he bailed himself out. I just like the way he competed in the fifth. So. I don't think there's that much more to be done. He's gone from losing a straight set final to Nadal to a four set final with Nadal both at Roland Garros to losing to Djokovic in five sets in Melbourne. So I think he's on his way. Remember that Andy Murray and Yvonne Lendl both lost four major finals before they broke, broke through, and then look what happened. Murray went on to win a couple of Wimbledons and a U.S. Open title, a few Olympics, and then Lendl, of course, won eight major titles. So it's, it, I think team will find his 
footing. And uh, he, once he breaks through and wins one, I think he'll he'll get a bunch before he's through in his career. I predict that he does win one in 2020. I think he's got a decent shot at the French, and I think he's got a good chance at the U.S. Open, especially if some of the the players, you know, the big three all in their 30s, especially if they're a little bit banged up. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. He's a strong contender at both. I mean, it, it would help him to get – he had a tough draw here. To have to be dealing – he had a five-setter in an early round. He had, to have to play Nadal in the quarters to then come back and play an informed Zarev, that was a lot of work coming into the finals. That is one of the things he has to guard against because he does tend to get in a lot of long matches. But, yes, I agree. I mean, he's going to be pretty confident going back to Roland Garros where he's played so well really the last four years and last two years especially with the finals. And the U.S. Open, now that he really believes in himself on hard courts, yes, he'll, he'll be a big threat in New York. Sometimes I wish he would just play a little bit safer, and I do think fatigue was a factor at this tournament, but sometimes I think he's too eager to try to use his power. I mean, he's he's so fit, he's so physical that I think it, it might serve him well sometimes to reel it back a little bit and play with some safer shot selection. Yeah, I agree. Uh, there were times, there were some very impressive stages, though, against Novak where he uh, used the slice backhand a lot. That and, was huge. And that, met, that did him a lot of good. It was very beneficial, and then he has to remember that because he loves his... Loves to drive that one-handed back end down the line with topspin and go for winners, but especially if he's missing as much as he was throughout these five sets with the back end down the line topspin, he should he should put that aside for a while and and go back to something that's more percentage oriented, and that's use the slice, use the slice, and then, of course his forehand is really such an, a, a potent shot. He's going to give himself openings for that if he's patient off the backhand side. Yeah, Masu has done a great job, I think putting the slice into team's game. One thing he did accomplish... He's done a great job. Excuse me for interrupting. Yeah. He's done a great job, period, Gil. I agree. I agree. That's a specific area, but he's been a, uh, just an excellent influence. I have to tell you, as someone who watched Masu as a player, I'm shocked how well he <laughs> adjusted to the coaching role because he was a very hot-headed competitor, and it got embroiled in, in a few controversies here and there, and he, w- he was not the most level-headed guy. But what he's saying off the court and, what he's, and the obvious... Uh, a calming effect he has on team is, is terrific. And as you know, midway through the tournament, they'd had Thomas Mooster over there also helping with the coaching. And uh, he, they, uh, Mooster, uh, the team decided to let him go. And I think that's probably partially because uh, Masu, maybe the two of them didn't get along that well, but obviously he believes in Masu uh, to the hilt, and he should. Yeah, he's done a tremendous job, and already we're seeing the results. Of course, that was team's first final, uh, major final on a hard court. And another thing he accomplished is he beat Rafa Nadal in best of five sets, which he hadn't done before. But let's talk about Nadal. It it seemed to me like all the tennis caught up to Rafa after the the long physical Davis Cup and uh, the similarly long physical emotional ATP Cup. I just don't think Nadal had 100%. I'm wondering if you saw the same thing. You read it very, very well. I mean, it's first of all, let's not forget, he had, the, he, he, he had the, the great summer last year, culminating with the five-set grueling final against Medvedev at the open plate. You know, it took some time in the fall, and then had some injury issues there in the fall. Wasn't really healthy in London, but then went to Davis Cup, and that was hard work, and he led Spain to the Davis Cup triumph. So the, the end of his year was really congested. And then he comes to, to the, they all had to turn their 
make this transition to the new year very quickly and and faster than usual in playing the ATP Cup. And Rafa got in some long had had to do some traveling in Australia to do that. And by he was then he lost in the finals to Djokovic. So yes, a lot of wear and tear. Didn't come in as fresh as he did a year ago. Plus a year ago when he lost to Djokovic in the finals in Australia. Yeah, the draw pretty opened up nicely, and he blitzed into the final without losing a set. This was, this was a tougher situation for him. And actually, I think Team was probably the worst draw he could have had for a quarterfinal. I think he was the last guy in that in that five to eight bracket that Rafa wanted to play right now. And he and and to his credit, by the way, because Rafa's so candid after these losses, he was very complimentary to Team, and he made a point of saying he Rafa himself did not feel he'd played a bad match, and he didn't. The shocker was that he couldn't yeah. win one of, one of the three tiebreaks. Considering the way he competes and plays every point like a match point, it makes him very dangerous in tiebreaks, but a team outplayed him in, in all three. Absolutely. Uh, what did you make of Federer's effort against Djokovic, given Roger's injury, uh, his groin problem, and the fact that he played two long matches coming into the semifinal in which both were mir- miraculous escapes? To be honest, you said it. Uh, the, I mean, first he was down eight four in the fifth set tiebreak against Millman, and then reels off six straight points. Who could have foreseen that? Millman, I think, got a little tight, but great yep. effort from Federer. And then Tennis Sandgren has seven match points and can't put Roger Wayne loses in five. So yes, the groin was an issue, but I think maybe a, a little bit too much was made of that. I think more of it was just the the, the two five setters combined. That's pretty tough for a guy who's thirty eight, almost thirty eight, and and a half years old, and uh, he's in great condition, but he hadn't played any matches. He'd, he'd, he'd had a nice long off-season. There were a lot of factors, and to me, yes, I mean, Novak was very kind after the match and said, Roger, you could see he was hurt, but I think more than anything, he was just a, he was, he was, he was debilitated from the, the two five-setters back-to-back that, as you said, were, were miraculous escapes, and he had to win the first set, and he had Novak down 1-4, love 40. That was a critical game. If he breaks there, he'd probably win the set 6-1 and at least get, have a glimmer of hope. But when Djokovic came back and blitzed Federer in the tiebreak with another brilliant tiebreak performance, there was never much doubt. I, I think that uh, I wish Roger had not said, I, I, realize, I, I thought I had a chance, but I thought it was about 3%. I don't, I, I don't think that was very sporting to say that. I think because the, as the Australians have always said, uh, Gil, and you're this the <laughs> This is going back to the to the fifties and the sixties. The, the standard line from the, all the great Australian players was, "If you if you walk out on the court, you have no excuses." Now, Roger deserves credit for deciding he was going to play, but I, I, I honestly feel it was they they had the groin checked out. If it had been really serious, there's no doubt he would have defaulted. So, and he once did that to Djokovic in 2014 at the end of the season in London at the year-end championships in the final. He had a bad back and he he defaulted. But uh, I feel like he played really well. I mean, Djokovic said afterwards himself, I thought yeah. Roger played pretty well. It was a good level when you think about it. He's up the break in the first set, played brilliantly up to a 4-1, love 40, and then played well just to get it into a tie break. And then it's one break each in the last two sets, which he lost 4-3. and three. So I thought it was a pretty good effort, and I think he did very well to get to the semis. How he pulled those two matches out back-to-back from the positions I just described, I, I'm still mind-boggled by how he pulled that off. He was very loose in the match against Djokovic, especially early in the first set. He was reeling off winners left and right. So I think it was somewhat of a dangerous mindset that Federer found himself in, and that's what presented the biggest challenge to Djokovic. 
Yeah, you're right. It's dangerous mindset. Also, it's easier to do that when you're just kind of swinging away and taking risks, especially on his return of serve. He was much, much more daring than he usually is. And I just think that it's very hard to sustain that. And it's a lot harder to keep to make yourself keep going for those shots so boldly when the score gets closer. So that's why that six game was so critical. And yeah, he never was able to sustain that level, but he did play uh, quite well under the circumstances. Did that match affect how you would look at, let's say, a, a meeting at the All England Club later this year, or is this kind of a match that you you throw out the window in terms of forecasting future results? I wouldn't put too much stock in it for that. I do think whenever they beat each other, it's important. Now, for instance, Roger had not beaten Novak since the end of fifteen, until he beat him in the year-end championships in London last year, and and so that was. A, very important psychological win. So I do think that Djokovic definitely didn't want to lose to him two times in a row, particularly not lose to him in a major, which it had not happened since 2012 Wimbledon. So I, I, it, has, it, it has value from that standpoint for Djokovic for sure. But I don't think Federer will feel like he'll, he'll, he'll throw it out the window and Djokovic won't put too much stock in it. What will be interesting is to see if they play a few times in the spring or not. And what bearing that would have on at Wimbledon if they happened to meet in Indian Wells or, or Miami. Let's get to your article now. It's titled, uh, How Djokovic Will Likely Beat Federer uh, and Nadal in Grand Slam Title Race. It was published today. You can check it out on tennis.com. And uh, you do something pretty bold in this article, something that I actually don't do. I make a point out of not doing it. I'll tell you why um, a little later. Um, but you predicted the slam count when it's all said and done and all three are done am i correct you predicted yep. 22 yep. for djokovic 21 each for nadal and feder yeah i mean i i'm i'm kind of hedging a bit on roger in the sense that i'm giving him a shot at one more of these wimbledons in the next 2 years uh-huh so i i i'm a little bit hedging on that i do expect rafa to get to 21 cuz i Somehow I think we got at least another French, and he's so competitive everywhere else. I think he could squeeze another U.S. Open out, and maybe his luck finally comes true and, and wins a second Australian because he's had a, played well there over the years and he just still has the one title from 2009. So, And Novak, I, I put up to 22, yes, because I think he's, he's so capable of pulling them off, Gil, in clusters, as you've seen. You know, I mean, he can go on good runs. Not, not, he's had runs of... of, of Four in a row, three in a row. You know, he had he won four in a row in fifteen and sixteen. The first guy to win four majors in a row since Labor had done in '69. And he, he, I'm not saying he's going to do that now, but I, I look at the year and I say, okay, you look at this year. You start with this year. Three more left. Like I'd really be very surprised if he didn't get one of those, and I wouldn't be surprised if he got two. And then you keep going into next year, the year after. He turns 33 and in May, and I feel like he's going to be very strong up to 35, 36, so he's going to be, you know, right in the thick of things at the majors for at least three more years, in my view, which, in which case, you know, to get to 22, he's got to get five out of, and maybe get five of the next 12 or 13 or 14 majors, which I think he's very capable of doing, even with the younger generation coming along so impressively. Yeah, I respect you for, for stabbing at this. The reason I don't is because I feel like it's attempting to predict longevity and i just have trouble trying to make a make a good estimation about how many years does nadal's body hold up how many years does Federer's body hold up and uh or you know djokovic you can lump him in there as well he's had a little bit fewer injury problems he's had more 
psychological bumps in the road. So I just have trouble because, you know, match by match, I, I'll always make predictions. But with this, I tend to shy away from it because of the longevity factor. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I hear you, but, I, I, you know, you get to my stage of life, and I, I just feel like it's, I, 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 people will respect the fact that I, I, I'm sure I would hear from some people in a, in a few years if I was off. But I feel yeah. like, you know, I'm making my educated guess based on having watched the sport since the 60s and having reported on it since the 70s. It just gives me a certain perspective. And I, so I don't tend to shy away. And, and I've discovered uh, o- o- across the years that sometimes, uh, obviously, sometimes I get it right and sometimes I don't. But people, I think generally they respect you for just stating your case right and trying to explain why why you believe that and then if you're wrong fine but I, I i just feel like it's also i don't like to do it too often and i did it a year ago with Djokovic as well as why i wanted to come back to it but i feel like people uh it's it's a great conversation piece for a lot of a lot of the people reading your columns they they like to speculate as well so i'm just sort of trying to lead them into that territory by giving my point of view yeah, I was just going to say, my, my listeners are going to appreciate it a lot because they ask me all the time, um, and, and maybe, I'll, maybe I'll rethink it and uh, try to think about this uh, myself. But I want to ask you another tennis media question, and this is, this is a tough one, um, but I think that a lot of people look at, look at you and appreciate the fact that you are not clumped into a group of members of tennis media that a lot of people consider to be pro-fetter, and a lot of people generalize the entire tennis media landscape and uh, basically claim that tennis media is pro-fetter. And usually you, you are left out of that, um, and some people make a point to, to leave you out of that. But I'm wondering if you agree. No, wait, uh, let me ask you just quickly. What did you mean about that? I, 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 I'm following you right up until that last comment. What do you mean? When like they don't, the, they don't clump you as pro fetter. Oh, okay, fine. Like, fine, like yeah. they, they don't. Right. You're not, you're not accused of. I don't. I've never seen you accused of being pro fetter, um, no, in a in a, bi- in a biased way. Right. No, I don't think I have been. I'm. Do you think that there's any merit to the uh, a claim that? And again, I'm going largely off things like Twitter and stuff, which is not an exact science. But do you think there's any merit to a claim that there is? Uh, an overwhelming l- level of fetter bias in tennis media in general. You know, it, it, what's difficult about that question, Gil, is that there's he is the most beloved player, perhaps man or woman that I that I've ever seen in, in my lifetime. I mean, among the fans. So then, here are these reporters, sort of uh, responding to this this incredibly uh, effusive feeling that the fans have for Federer wherever he goes. He's so celebrated, so it's tricky. I, I, knowing a lot of the people in the press rooms, I don't feel like, you know, most of the colleagues that I know, I don't feel like they're biased toward anyone. But I do think Federer has a, he just has this, he, there's almost a Federer effect because he's so, so great, grace, graceful, so multifaceted with his talent. And he comports himself so well on the court and, as you know, kind of reminiscent of Steffi Graf in the past. You know, he moves through his matches quickly, too. He doesn't take a long time between points. And there's so many appealing aspects to him that I think that 
somehow maybe reporters are responding to that, but but having been inside these media centers, uh, I haven't. I you know, and and talking to other reporters, I I don't feel there's a. I feel that that everybody tries to be as unbiased as they possibly can, and there's actually an appreciate deep appreciation for all three of these guys. So uh, that's interesting that you bring it up from a media standpoint, because I feel like the bias to me is really more on the part of the fans, because it must be so difficult to play Roger if you're Novak, even if you're Rafa. You know, there's just, they're just thirsting for Roger to win, and it doesn't matter whether it's Roland Garros or Senecor to Wimbledon, U.S. Open, I don't care where he goes, the fans flock to him. I've never seen anything quite like it, to tell you the truth. And I've seen a lot of popular players in my time, but I think he's sort of in a class of his own in, 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 in that sense. Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head, and, and thanks for that thoughtful uh, response. It's, it is the fans who are, who are biased, and it's their job to be biased. They're, they're fans. That's, right, that's, right. that's only natural. So generally, it's them projecting what they want to hear on the media. And normally, the so. fact that that's not aligned is, is a good thing. Right, right. I mean, I've been now, accused. I'm sure you've been accused. And, I mean, I can show you the same video, the same comment section where I'm anti-Fetter, anti-Nadal, and anti-Djokovic practically in the same comment section. And I'm sure you've experienced some of the same stuff at, oh, at have, some point. I have, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think it, what happens is the fans... They read your pieces, and they, they want you to be totally on the side of their man, whether it's Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, or anybody else. And if, if you're not, and you're trying to be, you're actually doing it in a balanced way, and maybe you're slightly critical of their player, then they, they, they overreact. And I think that's, that's what happens. But I think, there's the, the, I think there's a clear reason why Roger, uh, you know, there's no doubt there's a correlation between this this uh, this fan frenzy over him and the the way he's reported upon right right all right um i want to shift gears to to something this this is a little bit out of left field but it's been a year now or over a year now with the serve clock and just because we saw this controversy you know come up in the final with djokovic getting the time violation what what are your thoughts on the serve clock has this been effective is this something that is helping the game, speeding up the game, or is this just becoming a distraction? I think it's many more positives, Gil, than negatives. I mean, you brought up, you were alluding to what I had earlier, you know, Djokovic got two in one game there, a critical game there, and that cost him the second set in the finals against team after he'd made this great comeback to four-all, and then he gets those violations. And that's a little rough when it happens two in one game. The first is a warning, and the second you get a serve taken away, and it's immediate second serve. So, However, I then look at the, the flip side of that as, as the match got, as we got deeper into that contest, you could see Djokovic looking at the clock and making sure he didn't even get close to an infraction. And he was also more confident, so he was moving faster between points. And I think that's in the interest of the fans. I think what's happening is and that's why I say it's largely beneficial because I think now, for instance, if you replayed the Djokovic Nadal 2012 Australian final, five hours, 53 minutes. I bet you that match now with the shot clock wouldn't have gone. It might have been over in five hours. It might, they might have chopped off 45, 50 minutes of that match by moving faster between points. So what I do think is, is critical, though, Gil, is that the umpire, where, where Djokovic was upset in this finals, he felt that the umpire didn't, didn't have to call him on the second infraction. I think he had a legitimate beef. 
they've got to use some discretion sometimes. And if they're right up against it and they've actually tossed the ball, they haven't made contact yet, you might let it go when that player has already received a warning in that same game. So that's what I think really set him off against the umpire was, why did you have... Why did you do that the second time? That was not necessary. But to your larger question, I think it's been great for the sport. And the players can see. At least they can see that clock there ticking down. And Rafa is, is very good at measuring it to the very last second. Yvonne Lendl, was, who was such a great player in, in the 80s and 90s, you know, Yvonne was always taking the full, what was 30 seconds back then. And he would have benefited a lot from a clock, and he would have used it the way Nadal does now, almost scientifically looking at that clock and making sure he's made contact one second before the infraction would come. So I, I like it overall, and I think it's definitely to the benefit of the fans to have less time between points. That's a, definitely uh, a good thing, but I ask you because I was, I was a little bit, I'm a little bit on the fence. I still am, kind of 50-50 on it, and uh, it, it was topical. But what, I, what is it? You, tell me what you don't. I'm curious. Yeah. You're, what, are you, what are the negatives to you? So the first thing is that it's the umpire's discretion when to start the clock. And right, that has right. become that has become its own controversy in itself, where Nadal earlier in the tournament said uh, told an umpire you don't like the good tennis because right, she right, was starting she was yep. starting the clock too too soon. So it it's still a discretion thing, which is what I think we were trying to get rid of. We were trying to get rid of the subjectivity of the rule, but it didn't really accomplish that. And then the, the second part that I think can, can get a little bit silly sometimes is just the fact that instead of focusing on things that are important, sometimes the focus becomes the, the shot clock. And I just think that's unfortunate. Focus for the player, you mean? Even for the fans, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, that's true. When it, when I it, would say this, though, that as far as the, the umpire's discretion, I think most of them are pretty good and consistent. They, after a particularly long point, they might be more inclined to start the clock just an instant, in a second or two later. But the bottom line is that it's there for the players to see. Yes. So they can, they can at least gauge it well and make sure they get in position. I've, I have thought from time to time that a better the rule might be better if it's you, the clock ends when the player actually tosses the ball as opposed to when he makes contact because that could be another second, second and a half, whatever it might be. seems to me he's really started his serve when he's tossed. Yeah, I would agree with a, you. Right, as opposed to making contact. And I think that would, the players would appreciate that too. Yeah, e- even in, if a player starts their motion, that might not right. be bad either. Right, right. It might be fair to them because they, they're not—they're not stalling at that point. They're—they're—they're they're, they're moving into the motion. They're starting the serve itself. But to, to wait all the way to contact, particularly if somebody has a kind of a high toss, that's—that's—that yep. seems that can be a bit unfair. Let's end uh, on the women's side real quick with uh, Sonia Kennan. Uh, a miraculous run by her uh, takes out Coco Goff, who was fresh off the upset of Naomi Osaka and then uh, beats Garbine Muguruza in the final. How do you look at uh, Kennan's run? How surprised were you by it? And what, can, what do you expect from her moving forward? Well, I, yeah, those are great questions. I, I, didn't, I did not expect it. I, I, I wouldn't have been shocked to see her in the semis. Wasn't shocked to see her beat Coco, but to see her keep going that way and to beat here's Muguruza, who's won a couple of majors, you know. She's won the French, she's won Wimbledon, she's back in another final, and she knows, knows how to win them. And to see how much, how, how 
how much better Kennan was on the big points and the, and this ferocious competitive appetite she has. I I think we're going to see more from her. She's not necessarily the most gifted player out there, but she really applies herself. She's an intense competitor. Hits the ball really well up both sides, and I think her serve's going to improve a lot. I think she's just going to improve a lot in general. And I like I like where she's headed. I don't. She will not be satisfied to go into the one slam wonder club as they call it. I, I and she's got a lot of time and a lot of years ahead to add to her collection. And I just see her as someone who's going to keep moving beyond herself and getting better. I I was happy to see her win the title. It was as and she did it in a very impressive fashion. Yeah, very impressive uh, mentally, and uh, it, she was. She was a lot of fun to watch, a ferocious competitor and just 21 years old. All right, um, I will uh, let you go, but this has been a really, really fun discussion, and uh, I think people are going to enjoy it. Well, Gil, I feel like I'm the end and you're the quarterback, and all i got to do is catch the ball. <laughs> so what? it's always fun coming on with you cause, no, because, no, yeah. seriously, you do, you do set it up beautifully, and we think a lot alike. I don't think we differ much on, on uh, when it comes to these observations, so... I always enjoy comparing notes with you. I agree, and uh, uh, you did a great job. I would compare this to the to the 2019 U.S. Open final. I think pe- you know people are going to be people are going to be into this one. Yeah, oh, absolutely, no <laughs> doubt about it. All right, I'll talk to you soon. Okay, Gil, take care. I thank Steve for coming on. As always, so eloquent, thoughtful, and uh, insightful. And I will uh, continue to, to bring him on because of those very qualities. Uh, the last time we spoke was a decade interview. So if you enjoyed this discussion, go back into the archives and find that Steve Flink decade in review. And remember, it's much appreciated if you subscribe on iTunes, if you leave a rating and you leave a review. I'm also on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and, and your other favorite podcasting platforms, of course, Uh, Most of you will be viewing this on YouTube, and uh, I thank you for that as well. Until next time, hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.